1: Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this sixth day of July, 2007. I'm here today to warn of a new religious craze that is sweeping through the western industrialized nations. This religion is dangerous because it seeks to strip away our power of calm, rational thought, and replace it with blind religious sentiment to a creed that would seek to enslave us all. Am I referring to the apocalyptic brand of Christianity that preaches fire and brimstone raining down upon us from the heavens like that of so-called pious Christians like George W. Bush? Certainly not. In fact, I'm referring to something that most people wouldn't even think of as a religion at all. Perhaps this is best left explained by someone rather unexpected, The renowned author and anthropologist Mr. Michael Crichton had this to say recently about this new religion.
2: Um, I'm Daniela
0: Benstock. I'm also a freshman here. You stated in your remarks to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco that one of the most powerful religions in the Western world is environmentalism. Can you explain why you refer to environmentalism as a religion?
3: Mm. Because I have trained in anthropology, uh, Mm. The idea that anthropologists have about what constitutes a religion or what functions a religion serves are a little bit different from how you think about it if you categorize religions as, you know, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, something like that. So from the standpoint of an anthropological view, a religion is a collective set of beliefs. Um, There is a leader or leaders, who promote the beliefs among the followers. Followers make some kind of contribution or um, uh, change in uh, their lifestyle based on the religious belief. Uh, the religious belief gives them a total view of the world in terms of what, how the world is structured, what's right, what's wrong, what's good action, what's bad action. That all fits perfectly onto environmentalism the other thing that environmentalism does which I said to this group is it it rather precisely maps a lot of Judeo-Christian beliefs about the origin of the world and so on so that in environmental thinking there is a view that there used to be a sort of Eden and then people came and ruined that that Eden um, and that we are therefore sort of original sinners because we're destroying this planet, and what we can do, however, is get salvation through sustainability. And if you're a good person, you will seek salvation, and if you're a bad person, you'll drive SUVs. Um, (laughs) That is a kind of a religious belief. That was my argument.
1: Now, I can imagine the angry emails already starting to flood into my website, So I think it shouldn't have to be stated, but of course I'll have to state it anyway. Those who see environmentalism and the new aspects of environmentalism, which are incorporated into the global warming hysteria that's being perpetuated in the mainstream media right now, are not against the ideas and the ideals of the environmental movement. There are serious problems in the environment these days. Chimera cross-species genetic engineering creating all sorts of mutant hybrid animals and plant life that have never before been created, sometimes genes being spliced 30 to 40 times between different species, and these species being introduced into the environment without proper safeguards. We have reports of the American military dumping millions of liters of toxic nerve gas into rivers We have colony collapse disorder killing off millions of bees across the United States, signs that there is something severely wrong with the environment. And I think people understand this at an instinctual level, and that's why they are psychologically already prepared to accept the global warming hysteria as truth. But it's interesting that Mr. Crichton points out the religious undertones of the environmental movement. These religious undertones are important to understanding the psychology of what is being foisted upon us in this global warming hysteria. This goes back to ancient human history, the idea that human sacrifice can appease the gods and create favorable conditions for our society to grow and prosper. This is not an idea that was held by a few isolated groups in human history. This has been this has cropped up again and again and again throughout human history, from the ancient Chinese to African cultures to in Europe, you have the Celts performing human sacrifices, and of course the Aztecs in Latin America who were famous for their human sacrifices. Again and again, we see this in ancient civilizations and cultures the idea that sacrifice will somehow appease the gods of the environment, whether the sun god or the water god or whatever god might be seen to be the enemy of the civilization. And this human sacrifice or the ability to sacrifice something to the god will appease the god which will then smile favorably upon that civilization and bless them with it, with its bounty and harvest. I think anyone with even a passing understanding of human psychology and human history will understand that what was once routinely practiced in society after society, civilization after civilization, across the ancient world, cannot help but be part of the human psyche, which will crop up again and again, and it is this understanding of the human propensity to blame things in the natural environment on oneself that is being exploited by the global warming crowd. Who is responsible for the tornadoes? You are. Who is responsible for the hurricanes? You are. Who is responsible for all the millions of cute little polar bears who are going to die up in the Arctic when our icebergs melt? You are you and your evil car are causing all the death and destruction that you feel and you see around you. This goes to directly to the basic tricks of psychology, which correspond at a deep psychic level with our feeling that there is something wrong with the environment. And it's very easy to get people to believe that they are the problem. And it's exactly reflected in some of the rhetoric that is coming out of some of the gurus of this movement, including Al Gore, whose documentary An Inconvenient Truth has become one of the... Uh, flagship productions of the anthropogenic or man-made global warming crowd. Al Gore becoming something of a guru to these people. And this comes from a report from the Express News posted on May fifth, two 2007, entitled, Gore Sees Spiritual Crisis in Warming. And it reads in part, quote, "...playing equal parts visionary, cheerleader, and comedian," Al Gore brought his message of how to fight global warming to a capacity crowd of receptive architects Saturday in San Antonio. The former vice president referred continually to a new way of thinking that is emerging in the country and offered hope in the battle to control the effects global warming will have on the planet. "'It's in part a spiritual crisis,' Gore told the crowd at the convention center at the American Institute of Architects National Convention. "'It's a crisis of our own self-definition, who we are. "'Are we creatures destined to destroy our own species?' Clearly not. End quote. If that doesn't strike you as the type of calm and reasoned analysis that would come out of a cold and dispassioned look at the scientific evidence behind global warming, then you're not alone. In an article entitled Skepticism Over Climate Claims from the BBC News website on the 3rd of July 2007... There's details of an Ipsos Mori poll, which was was conducted between the 14th and the 20th of June 2007, which found that 56% of people believe that scientists are still questioning climate change. It's worth examining the wording of that piece to find the slant behind it. Even the phrase, quote, found 56% believed scientists were still questioning climate change, end quote betrays the BBC News website bias that, in fact, there is no debate in the scientific community about global warming, when, of course, that's not the case. There is debate about the qu- the facts behind anthropogenic global warming. And these facts are not being debated much anymore. It's more centered on the spiritual crisis, which Al Gore talked about. Well, let's, in an effort to interject some science into this debate, let's go to some science- scientists talking about the problems with anthropogenic global warming, we're going to turn to an uh, excellent documentary which is uh, again available on Google Video called The Great Global Warming Swindle. This documentary was produced by the British Channel 4 and was broadcast on British television earlier this year. It seeks to show some of the scientific questions behind anthropogenic global warming, some s- raising some serious issues with the uh, theory as it's been propounded to us through the mainstream media. So let's go directly to an audio clip from that documentary detailing some of the problems with the man-made global warming argument that you usually don't hear in the mainstream media. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America.
0: Former Vice President Al Gore's emotional film, An Inconvenient Truth, is regarded by many as the definitive popular presentation of the theory of man-made global warming. His argument rests on one all-important piece of evidence taken from ice core surveys in which scientists drill deep into the ice to look back into Earth's climate history hundreds of thousands of years. The first ice core survey took place in Vostok in the Antarctic. What it found, as Al Gore correctly points out, was a clear correlation between carbon dioxide and temperature.
1: We're going back in time now, 650,000 years. Here's what the temperature has been on our Earth. Now one thing that kind of jumps out at you is, do do they ever fit together? (laughs) Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The relationship is actually very complicated, but there is one
3: relationship that is far more powerful than all the others, and it is this. When there is more carbon dioxide, the temperature gets warmer. Mm -hmm.
0: Al Gore says the relationship between temperature and CO2 is complicated, but he doesn't say what those complications are. In fact, there was something very important in the ice core data that he failed to mention. Professor Ian Clark is a leading Arctic paleoclimatologist who looks back into the Earth's temperature record tens of millions of years.
4: When we look at uh, climate on long scales, we're looking for geological material that actually records climate. If we are to take an ice sample, for example, we use isotopes to reconstruct temperature, but the atmosphere that's imprisoned in that ice, we liberate, and then we look at the CO2 content.
0: Professor Clark and others have indeed discovered, as Al Gore says, a link between carbon dioxide and temperature. But what Al Gore doesn't say is that the link is the wrong
4: way round. So here we're looking at the ice core record from Vostok, And in the red, we see temperature going up from early time to later time at a very key interval when we came out of a glaciation. And we see the temperature going up, and then we see the CO2 coming up. CO2 lags behind that increase. It's got an 800-year lag, so temperature is leading CO2 by 800 years.
0: There have now been several major ice core surveys. Every one of them shows the same thing. The temperature rises or falls, and then, after a few hundred years, carbon
4: dioxide follows. So obviously, carbon dioxide is not the cause of that warming. In fact, we can say that the warming produced the increase in carbon dioxide. CO2 clearly cannot be causing temperature changes. It's a product of temperature. It's following temperature changes. The ice core record goes to the very heart of the the problem
5: we have here. They said, if the CO2 increases in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas, then the temperature will go up. But the ice core record shows exactly the opposite. So the fundamental assumption, the most fundamental assumption of the whole theory of of climate change due to humans
0: is, is shown to be wrong. But how can it be that higher temperatures lead to more CO2 in the atmosphere? To understand this, we must first restate the obvious point, that carbon dioxide is a natural gas produced by all living things. Few things annoy me more than to hear people talking about carbon dioxide as being a pollutant. You're made of carbon dioxide, I'm made of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is how living things grow. What's more, humans are not the main source of carbon dioxide. Humans produce a um, small fraction in the single digits percentage-wise of the CO2 that is produced in the atmosphere. Volcanoes produce more CO2 each year than all the factories and cars and planes and other sources of man-made carbon dioxide put together. More still comes from animals and bacteria, which produce about 150 gigatons of CO2 each year compared to a mere 6.5 gigatons from humans. An even larger source of CO2 is dying vegetation, from falling leaves, for example, in the autumn. But the biggest source of CO2, by far, is the oceans. Carl Wunsch is Professor of Oceanography at MIT. He was also visiting professor in oceanography at Harvard University and University College London, and a senior visiting fellow in mathematics and physics at the University of Cambridge. He is the author of four major textbooks on oceanography.
2: The ocean is the major reservoir into which carbon dioxide goes when it comes out of the atmosphere or to, from which it is re-emitted to the the atmosphere. If you heat the surface of the ocean, it tends to emit carbon dioxide. So similarly, if you cool the ocean surface, the ocean can dissolve more carbon dioxide.
0: So the warmer the oceans, the more carbon dioxide they produce, and the cooler they are, the more they suck in. But why is there a time lag of hundreds of years between a change in temperature and a change in the amount of carbon dioxide going into or out of the sea? The reason is that oceans are so big and so deep They take literally hundreds of years to warm up and cool down. This time lag means the oceans have what scientists call a memory of temperature changes.
2: The ocean has a memory of past events uh, running out as far as 10,000 years. So, for example, if somebody says, oh, I'm seeing changes in the North Atlantic, This must mean that the climate system is changing. It may only mean that something happened in a remote part of the ocean decades or hundreds of years ago, whose effects are now beginning to show up in the North Atlantic.
0: The current warming began long before people had cars or electric lights. In the past 150 years, the temperature has risen just over half a degree Celsius. But most of that rise occurred before 1940. Since that time, the temperature has fallen for four decades and risen for three. There is no evidence at all from Earth's long climate history that carbon dioxide has ever determined global temperatures. But if CO2 doesn't drive Earth's climate, what does? Isn't it bizarre to think that it's humans, you know, when we're filling up our car, turning on our lights, that we're the ones controlling climate? Just look in the sky. Look at that massive thing, the sun. Even humans at our present six and a half billion
3: are minute
0: relative to that. In 1991, senior scientists at the Danish Meteorological Institute decided to compile a record of sunspots in the 20th century and compare it with the temperature record. What they found was an incredibly close correlation between what the sun was doing and changes in temperature on Earth. Solar activity, they found, rose sharply to 1940, fell back for four decades until the 1970s, and then rose again after that.
2: When we saw this um, correlation between the temperature and solar activity or sunspot cyclings, then uh, people said to us, OK, it can be just a coincidence. So how can we prove that it's not just a coincidence? Well, one obvious thing is to have a longer time series or a different time series. And then we went back in time.
0: So Professor Fries Christiansen and his colleagues examined 400 years of astronomical records to compare sunspot activity against temperature variation. Once again, they found that variations in solar activity were intimately linked to temperature variation on Earth. It was the sun, it seemed, not carbon dioxide or anything else, that was driving changes in the climate.
1: No, it couldn't possibly be the sun making the Earth hotter. That's just crazy talk. Of course, it would perfectly correspond to numerous reports we have of the fact that the entire solar system is heating up, we have this report from 28th of June, 1998, entitled Global Warming Detected on Triton, which reads in part, quote, There may not be much industrial pollution on Neptune's largest moon, but things are hotting up nonetheless. The Earth is not alone in suffering global warming. According to observations made by NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and several ground-based instruments, temperatures on Neptune's largest moon have increased dramatically since the Voyager space probe swung by in 1989. So much so, in fact, that Triton's surface of frozen nitrogen is turning into gas, making its thin atmosphere denser by the day. At least since 1989, Triton has been undergoing a period of global warming, confirms astronomer James Elliot, professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Percentage-wise, it's a very large increase. We have this report from the October 9, 2002, entitled, Pluto is Undergoing Global Warming, Researchers Find which reads in part, Pluto is undergoing global warming as evidenced by a threefold increase in the planet's atmospheric pressure during the past 14 years. We have this report from Space.com from the 4th of May 2006, entitled New Storm on Jupiter Hints at Climate Change. We have a report from December 8th, 2003, entitled Odyssey Studies Changing Weather and Climate on Mars. And this all corresponds to an article from The Telegraph from the 17th of July 2004 entitled The Truth About Global Warming, It's the Sun That's to Blame, which reads in part, quote, Global warming has finally been explained. The earth is getting hotter because the sun is burning more brightly than at any time during the past 1,000 years, according to new research. A study by Swiss and German scientists suggests that increasing radiation from the sun is responsible for recent global climate changes. Dr. Sami Solanki, the director of the renowned Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Göttingen, Germany, who led the research, said, quote, "The sun has been at its strongest over the past 60 years and may now be affecting global temperatures." End quote. Again, we have study after study showing that the entire solar system is heating up, but we have people like Mr. Al Gore proclaiming that it is you driving your SUV that is actually contributing to the heating up of the entire Earth. What is the agenda behind the people who want you to believe that you are responsible for climate change? That's a question that I put to Dr. Tim Ball. Tim Ball is a climate scientist who, like me, questions the science behind the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. I interviewed Dr. Ball recently from Victoria, and he joined me to talk about his scientific concerns with the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. Later in the interview, we got a little into the political agenda behind the people promoting man-made global warming. I asked Dr. Bull what he thought that political agenda was.
5: That's a very, very good question, and one that I've been addressing a lot lately, although it's not getting out there much. and Part of the reason, by the way, it's not getting out there is because the public, uh, and Gore is an example of it, that understand the weather and climate, very, very little of it. Uh, for example m- most people don 't know that the, the atmosphere is heated by the ground, not by the sun. Um, yeah, the sun heats the ground initially, but that and and uh, so fundamental stuff like that um, but But the answer to your question is and, and of course it 's that old question well what 's your agenda? you know everybody 's got to have an agenda um, i I believe uh, that the agenda is uh, in, wrapped up in a statement by our friend Maurice Strong. When he said that the problem uh, or the planet 's problem are the industrialized nations, and isn 't it our duty to get rid of them now, the industrialized nations exist uh, because of energy um, you you 'd be foolish to attack energy because the public would react right away and, and you 've got proof of that with the gasoline prices going up immediately there 's an outcry, but you can shut an engine down in two ways, and the engine of uh, the uh, the industrial engine uh, you can squeeze the gas line which i just said they w- they wouldn't do or you can plug the exhaust and uh, the exhaust uh, the byproduct of that industrial engine is co2 and uh, so if you can point at co2 as uh, causing the, d- the ultimate destruction of the planet um, then you you effectively shut down those industrialized nations And, of course, um, in in an ironic way, um, many of the countries of the world, in fact, most of them, um, saw that if they implemented Kyoto, it would have a very serious effect on their economy and jobs. And from a political point of view, they weren't willing to pay that price. So the focus on human CO2 is actually a focus upon um, the industrial nations, the industrial activities, and wrapped up in in, uh, Maurice Strong's statement. Now, what happened, of course, was then this this attack upon industry and businesses, where you see that the the companies are bullied into silence and sort of playing games of pretending to be green and all the rest of it just simply to avoid the, the pressures and the politicians doing the same thing um, it, it it's um, it's it's absolutely uh, backfiring and and it, it's attacking the wrong issue completely and um, so uh, it, and the reason the reason I'm saying it's the wrong issue is what i mentioned earlier that co2 is 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 absolutely crucial to life on earth and by the way, at 385 parts per million, which is an estimate of the current level of CO2 in the atmosphere, and I say that because the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere fluctuates tremendously from day-to-day, week-to-week, and year-to-year. Um, it, 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 that's low. Uh, all the research shows that plants uh, function best between 1,000 and 1,200 parts per million. And in fact, commercial greenhouses pumping up to 1,000 parts per million in to achieve four times greater yield. And the geologic record over 600 million years shows that the average CO2 in the atmosphere is about 1,000 parts per million. So that seems to suggest that the plants have evolved to that level, and at 385 parts per million, they're, they're malnourished. And, and we know that if you reduce that level of CO2, the plants will start to suffer and at 200 parts per million, they start to die, and at 150 parts per million, they're dead. And so the focus on CO2, because it's supposedly causing the, uh, the end of the planet because of runaway global warming, it, in fact, um, it, trying to reduce that is going to cause more harm. And um, so it, it, that's the political agenda. And by the way, uh, of course, this whole attack upon industry and businesses um, happened to suit the, the extreme environmentalists, the Greenpeace's, the Sierra Club's. Um, it, it suited their agenda very nicely. And so you end up with this unholy alliance uh, between uh, the Marie Strong group and then the um, the environmental groups. And, of course, it, it always amuses me when you see somebody like Andrew Weaver, who's a computer modeler of climate at the, at the University of, of Victoria, um He's pro-nuclear, so he's always pushed, uh, saying CO2 is the problem, like computer models prove it. And, of course, the Greens support him. Oh, he's wonderful. He's against CO2 and industry. Then when they find out he's pro-nuclear, they turn on him again. And uh, so it, it, it created um, it's almost Kafkaesque, and in it's, in its uh, what's going on in the world.
1: All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Bell.
5: Thank you for the opportunity, James.
1: To think that there is no agenda behind the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis would be naive at best. But one possible avenue for investigation would be the carbon credit market, which recently has started to boom as a a fledgling industry. As reported by the Financial Times of London on May 2nd, 2007, carbon credit market triples, and it reads in part, quote, the market in carbon credits grew faster than expected last year, tripling to $30 billion from $10 billion in 2005, the World Bank said on Wednesday. Of course, that's not the most insidious part of the political agenda behind man-made global warming. Of course, once we accept that we are responsible for this global warming, the only answer is to accept the police policing of our own actions by governments and supranational bodies which will eventually erode the political sovereignty of our nations and if you think that's hyperbole you might want to read this AP report from February 4th 2007 entitled 45 nations answer call against climate change and it reads in part quote 45 nations answered France's call Saturday for a new environmental body to slow inevitable global warming and protect the planet perhaps with policing powers to punish violators. This, of course, corresponds to a trend of power being centralized in the hands of a few non-democratic, unaccountable, supranational entities like the United Nations or the World Trade Organization, in which you have no rights and you have no vote. But what's the funding mechanism for these supranational bodies? The funding mechanism, of course, will be the global carbon tax, which is on its way. We have this report from CBC News, entitled Quebec to Collect Nation's First Carbon Tax. Energy companies will pass costs to consumers, say analysts. Quebec will implement Canada's first carbon tax in October, collecting just under one cent a litre from petroleum companies in the province, which will raise about $200 million a year to pay for energy-saving initiatives, such as improvements to public transit. Of course, this all sounds... Wonderful, it sounds great. Of course I'd be willing to pay one cent a litre for gasoline in order to offset carbon emissions. Who wouldn't want to do that? Of course, what's not being shown with this faulty scientific research is that what the agenda is really promoting is a greater move to fascism, which will clamp down on our basic human rights. A hint of this is given from some of the propaganda coming out of the Live Earth concert, which is taking place on 7-7 this tomorrow. We have this report entitled, Is Travel Destroying the Planet? Uh, Part of that propaganda machine which is promoting the idea that, of course, we can't travel as much as we used to because we're destroying the climate by doing so. So even basic rights of moving across borders will be uh, eroded under the new um, man-made global warming regime. Much scarier is this report from The Australian, entitled Children Bad for Planet, which reads in part, quote, having large families should be frowned upon as an environmental misdemeanor in the same way as frequent long-haul flights, driving a big car, and failing to reuse plastic bags, says a report to be published today by a green think tank. The paper by the Optimum Population Trust say, will say that if couples had two children instead of three, they could cut their family's carbon dioxide output by the equivalent of 620 return flights a year between London and New York. End quote. For anyone who does not find this chilling, I say you're not paying attention. People are now starting to question our very right to have children based on the fact that it's an, quote, environmental misdemeanor, whatever that means. Enforceable by whom? The question, of course, with every new policy paper by some population reduction think tank is who do they think is going to be in charge of deciding who will have how many children? Of course, it will all boil down to economics like everything else. The same people who will be able to afford the $60,000 of offset carbon footprint for every long-haul flight as Prince Charles would have you believe is necessary now every time you take a long-distance airplane, are the same people who are going to be able to have the large families because they can afford to. The average man or woman, of course, will be taxed through the nose for the privilege of having children because, of course, it's an environmental misdemeanor, or worse, there will be, like in China, where there will be an enforced one-child policy. This brings me to my enigmatic title for today's episode, Feudalism 2.0. Feudalism was the agricultural mode of production in medieval society based on the relationship between lords and their peasants in which lords granted peasants the right to a small plot of land in return for labor service. The lords would then provide them with military protection. In the same way, the lords of today will be the multinational corporations and the supranational bodies which are eroding our national sovereignty. They will provide us the right, the privilege of working a small plot of land for them, whether in literal or metaphorical terms. In return for our labor service, they will give us protection against those evil terrorists who are always plotting to kill us with those fearful firebombs. We are moving into the global plantation where you will have no rights, where your rights will be decided based on the whims of organizations to which you are not a member and to which you have no vote. If you think this is hyperbole, I encourage you to go look at the documents yourself from today's episode. Please go to my website, CorbettReport.com, and start researching the science of enslavement, which is slowly forging chains around you. I urge you to resist. I am speaking to your instincts. If you do not resist the globalization and the feudalism now, it will be too late very shortly. Keep this in mind while you're bobbing your head to Shakira at Live Earth tomorrow. And keep in mind the true agenda behind man-made global warming. That's it for today's episode. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me. Please join me again next week for Episode 7 of the Corbett Report, Investigate seven. seven.